So life is filled with salvation stories. Some of the best movies are stories where against all odds, someone, someone is rescued from harm and brought to safety. Books are the same way. Books we read, some of the best books are salvation stories. The damsel in distress, as we used to say, rescued, brought to safety because of the work of another. It's also true in real life. I've been the car savior lately, so that's in my mind. But since I have five kids, all now driving age or older, I've been the car savior many times. I like to call myself the auto savior, maybe today. So, so many old cars, I've lost track. So many hundreds of thousands of miles, I've lost track. And so you get the phone call or you get the text. And in fact, it's not even salvation, it's redemption, right? It's redemption because security and safety for one of my kids at great cost to me, right? To set them free. Well, I use the illustration because we've had a lot of cars breaking down lately and it's on my mind. But I don't use the illustration to highlight me and how great I am. I use the illustration because we all are familiar with helping someone else at cost to us to benefit them, to set them free, to bring them to safety. Indeed, life is filled with redemption stories. Life is filled with savior stories. It's the greatest narrative ever if it's a great salvation narrative. Well, today, what we're going to do, and I mention all that because we all understand salvation. You don't have to go to church to do it. We all understand redemption. You don't have to go to church to understand redemption. We all get it if we stop and think about it. Today, what we're going to do is look at the second greatest salvation story in all of the Bible, the second greatest redemption story in all of the Bible, and I would say in all of human history. And you might be thinking... Why don't we talk about the best one? I came to church and got dressed up, got up early. Well, we're going to look at the second greatest redemption salvation story because the second greatest redemption salvation story is designed to help us to see the significance of the first greatest salvation redemption story. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the Exodus. The Exodus, in the book of Exodus, we're going to be in chapters 11 to 14, I hope. That's my intention. And you can find the book of Exodus. It has its name because it's all about the Exodus, the ultimate deliverance. The ultimate deliverance up until the time of the incarnation. So that's what makes it the second greatest redemption story. But it's designed to help us to understand the first most important redemption story, the the, the greater Exodus Freedom from sin and death and bondage. And so we are studying the book of Exodus as a church. So if you're just joining us, I'll bring you up to speed. Uh, What's happening is for 400 years, the Israelites have been enslaved and have been oppressed in Egypt. And suffering after suffering after suffering, 400 years worth... And God uniquely, uniquely appears to Moses and promises to set the people free... And so we've seen the plagues, we've seen they're called blows because they're, they're strikes against Pharaoh, the tyrannical king, the powerful king, and God has promised redemption. God has promised salvation, and he's going to work uniquely, extraordinarily through Moses. Moses is a, is a mediator. He, he's, he's the Christ figure, if you will. There will be a greater Moses who will come, a greater mediator. It anticipates him and the greater exodus. And so what we've seen, we've seen that the first nine of these plagues and Pharaoh wants 
no part of it. He thinks somehow he can just keep them enslaved. And now we're at the final one, which would be the Passover, which would be the killing of the firstborn apart from having a substitute, apart from having the lamb's blood shed and on your doorpost so that the angel of death, if you will, will pass over and you will not face death the death of your firstborn. So I hope that's a a bit of a review that can kind of help you. Let's just scan our way through chapter 11 just a little bit. This is also review, but it does say in 11.4 that every, 11.5, how about every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So it's going to be dark and it's going to be bleak and it's going to be terrible and awful. So you need provision, provision that the Lord could make. Then let's go to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, it talks about the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of month. So it's going to be special. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb, notice, for a household. So there's the idea of substitution, which will carry into the New Testament as we look at Jesus. Verse five says, your lamb shall be without blemish. Obviously we know if we know our New Testaments very well at all. First Peter 1 19, Christ is the one who's like that lamb without blemish or spot. Then we go to chapter 12, verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel, so on the top and the sides of the houses in which they eat. So this is going to be a provision so that there is the passing over, so that there is not death brought to that house. Then in verse 11, toward the end there, at the very end of verse 11, it is the Lord's Passover. Then what do you learn about why? He explains why in verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am this unique God that we learn about in Exodus who's different. He's not like the fire God. He's not like the water God. He's not like the the storm God. He's not like any of those gods. He's just the one who is. The self-existent, eternal God who needs nothing, who's not assigned to anything or mythology. He's the Lord who will do this. Then it says, I will pass over you in verse 13, verse 14. uh, This shall be to you a memorial day. And that's stressed a lot. We won't go through all of the passages. But it's not only going to happen here historically, but it's to be remembered. It's, it's to be memorialized. It's to be a holiday for Israel. Their whole year should, should in one sense center around this event because God provides forgiveness. God provides redemption. God provides salvation. And so they're to remember this great event that's going to lead to the Exodus, the Passover leading to the Exodus. Then it's in full swing in verse 29 where it happens, the striking down of the firstborn. It would have been awful. It would have been terrible so much so. In verse 30, there was a great cry in Egypt, not a house where someone was not dead. Can you imagine? In verse 40, we learned that it was there for, they were there for 430 years. The slavery, it needs to be broken and it's finally going to be broken now. Verse 42, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the Exodus. And then we're almost where we were a couple of weeks ago. How about verse 46 of chapter 12? It shall be eaten when they 
slaughter the lamb and they cook the lamb according to the instruction. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. And where we left off a couple of weeks ago is there. Because we know that passage. It sounds familiar. Not a single bone of the, uh, of the animal will be broken. And we know that passage from John's gospel account in John 19. That's same thing is spoken of whom? It's spoken of Jesus. It's really fascinating. Listen to what it says in John 19.36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. I want you to remember that. These things took place, the events in the life of Christ took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And I want to pick things up there for a moment because it's so fascinating to me that bones of the lamb not to be broken, bones of Jesus not to be broken. But in John 19, it says no bones of Jesus will be broken so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Can anyone here find that prophecy in the Bible in one verse? I don't think so. I've got really good Bible software. I couldn't find it. There's not a specific prophecy, not in Exodus, not in the passage we just read. There's not a specific prophecy that says no bones of the coming Messiah will be broken. But John 19 treats it that way. And I invite you to think with me about why. It treats it as a prophecy because no doubt the Passover is prophetic. It's the whole thing is prophetic. The Exodus is prophetic. It's, it's designed to be prophetic in that it's anticipating a greater lamb. It's anticipating one who would come to be the ultimate lamb. Super interesting to me. So, so the Bible has specific prophecies sometimes, and they're specifically fulfilled. This is not one of them, but it's giving us some insight as to how we should read the Old Testament. It's giving us some insight as to how we should read the Exodus event. This happens, and it's prophetic as a whole because it's never meant to be the end game. It's never meant to be the ultimate. It's in, in anticipation of Christ who would come. None of his bones would be broken so that the scripture, not a specific prophecy, so that the scripture, right? The Old Testament, so that the, the, the Exodus event, the, the Passover, so that the scripture more holistically would be fulfilled. I love knowing that. It's in, in anticipation to the point where it says that it is a prophecy, but really it's looking much broader than that. That really helps me, gives me insight as to how I should understand the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the ceremonial system that's going to come as a result of this. And now we go on in verse 12. It says in verse 47, sorry, chapter 12, verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger, stranger shall show, sojourn with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So this is meant for people who are in relationship with God, uniquely a covenant relationship. It reaches back to the Abrahamic covenant because of the circumcision. It's people who really, truly, genuinely say Yahweh is my God. 
So it's not just for anybody and everybody, but do notice it ties back to Genesis. And then verse, verse 49 says, There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. 50 says, All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out. Salvation, right? It's describing redemption. Uh, he brought them out. And if he brings them out, he's setting them free from oppression. That's redemption talk. That's salvation talk out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. For a long time as a Christian, I thought, what's with the hosts, right? It, it, it's a military term, right? That's what it is. And I'm like, oh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of, of warfare, the Lord who is strong. It's interesting here, though. It's peculiar. He's going to bring the Israelites who've been enslaved for some 400 years. I wonder what kind, of, what, what kind of army are they? Not much of an army. But it's interesting that he chooses to use that word. And I think he chooses to use that word on purpose because they are going to win the battle. But it's not going to be done because of their military might. It's going to be all the Lord's doing. So much so it, they're referred to as if they are military, fascinatingly enough. Let's now transition to chapter 13. Trying to get through chapter 14, so we got to keep it going. 13 says, this is all about the firstborn. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate, set apart, sanctify to me all the firstborn. So reserve them for something special, something unique. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. We would, you know, add a footnote and say it's all his anyway, but they have a unique kind of relationship amongst the unique relationships. Then it says in verse three, then Moses said to the people, remember, right? Memorialize. Don't ever forget. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, deliverance, redemption, salvation out of the house of slavery for by a strong hand. It's a great metaphor. God doesn't have hands. He's a spirit, but you see the picture with a strong hand, with his might. The Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore, oh, covenantal oath happening, goes back to Genesis, Abrahamic covenant which he swore. Why is the Exodus happening? It's happening actually tied to something else that happened. It's tied to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which he swore, he owed to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all the territory. You shall tell your son on that day. This, I love this. This is because of what the Lord did for me. Yeah, you could say us, but the us includes me. It's personal. For me. When I came out of Egypt, this is what the great I am did. This is, this is to be remembered. And we have the unleavened bread because we had to leave in haste. And so this is going to be our tradition. It's going to be our, our, our memory. It's going to be our memorial. We're going to set this day apart as a unique special holiday because we remember that God delivered us 
and me. It says in verse 9, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. And if you've ever wondered why some Jews have small boxes attached to their left arm and their forehead, it's because they take that in a woodenly literal kind of way that Jesus actually rebukes in the gospel account as something for show. But the idea is not to be taken literally, but taken dead seriously. You know what? This is going to be your focus. This is what you remember. You never forget this when you're working with your hands. You have this at the forefront of your mind. Our God saves, not like the gods of the nations, not like the gods of the Egyptians. Our God makes promises. He swears under oath, if you will, under covenant oath. And whenever he does that, you can know that it's going to happen. Don't ever forget. Never forget that this is how it's going to be. Verse 9 says, For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statute at its appointed time from year to year. What do you think? I think we'd have to work really hard to not get the point. And we're just looking at the big picture. Just... In statement after statement after statement, we need to know, we need to remember, we need to never forget that our God, unique from all the other gods, keeps his word. And he's a saving God. He's a delivering God. And he keeps his promises to us. It's to be remembered. Verse 11 says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore, as he covenanted to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. Again, reaching back, Abrahamic covenant. You shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey, work animal, they didn't eat or sacrifice. You shall redeem with a lamb, a non-firstborn lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Seems to be a pretty startling way of saying, don't compromise this. If it's the firstborn, it belongs to the Lord, no matter what, or it's not to be used at all. Verse 13 then says, every firstborn of man among your sons shall redeem. Verse 14, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. There's a payment made. We understand that, that, that we too are sinners. We too are guilty. But the Lord provided a provision through the blood of a lamb. And so we're going to honor that and remember that, that we too need such provision. Verse 16 then says, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. It doesn't say it shall be, but as a, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Stress, 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 same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. Don't ever forget this. We're going to remember this. And when the kids get old enough to say, why do we do this anyway? Let me tell you about redemption. Let me tell you about salvation. Let me tell you about how our God is different. 
That's what he's saying. The firstborn thing, why, why is the firstborn thing so important? Uh, I suppose we could have lots and lots and lots of answers, but let's at least remember that the firstborn consecrated to the Lord, given to the Lord. Well, the firstborn, oftentimes, and I hate to say this as the baby of the family in my family, <laughs> Firstborn son is super important because somebody's going to be there to take care of you. Somebody's going to be there to work. Somebody's going to be there, especially in that kind of culture and society. Somebody's going to be there to be able to to, to pass on, to keep the family name. So taking care, working for there for you when you're old, the the family name's going to go on there. They're very important. And the Lord doesn't want the thirdborn like me. You know, well, maybe if we have enough kids, we'll give one of them like Pat to the Lord. <laughs> no, it's, see, it's, it's emphasizing trust. It's more risky. We're going to give the, the first one to the Lord. It means we're going to have to trust him to maybe give us some more workers, some more, some more kids to, to help out and, and to carry on the family name. And it means more than that, but I don't think it would mean less than that. It's an act of trusting God. You give God the first, the best in a certain sense because you trust him. Interestingly enough, and I don't, I don't want to get too into the weeds on this, but in Numbers chapter 3, uh, the Lord will go on to tell Moses that the firstborn are going to be replaced with the priests. They're going to act as the firstborn. Which gets kind of interesting because then you start thinking about Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. It says in Colossians 1.15, Romans chapter 8.29, he's the ultimate firstborn, and he's the ultimate firstborn as the ultimate priest. No doubt, ultimately anticipating. Just one more thing about Jesus as the ultimate firstborn, Colossians 1.15. No redemption is provided for him as the firstborn. No animal offered for him as the firstborn. Nothing consecrated on his behalf as the ultimate firstborn. It's fascinating that in John chapter 17, Jesus says... I sanctify myself. He sanctifies himself and even by his own work, he's qualified to be the firstborn. No provision needs to be made for him because he himself accomplishes the work of consecration. John chapter 17, verse 19. Will, we better keep moving. I just want you to know my notes are a mess today. I'm like, how am I going to do this? But I think so far the Lord is blessing. So we'll keep it going. All right, let's, let's keep going. I think I have chapter 15 almost ready to go too, but we won't go there. Okay, Exodus 13, 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I'm going to deliver them, but they're going to act cowardly when they see it's dangerous. So we're going to take them not the short way, but the longer way. Okay, verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Some scholars of the Old Testament would say equipped for travel might be a better way to take it. Or if it's equipped for battle, it's in battle formation. In an orderly fashion is how they're lined up, as if they're warriors. But I would also remind you what I already reminded you of. They've been enslaved for 400 years. Um, they're not going to do, be doing any of the battling, even if they're in battle formation. 
The Lord is going to do that. 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. That's peculiar. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear in Genesis 50, verse 25, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Interesting point. Joseph knows. Joseph knows about the Abrahamic covenant. This is going to happen. And when it happens... At least, at least bring my remains with you. But he is certain that it's going to happen. Land flowing with milk and honey in Jerusalem. It's going to happen. So honor me in that way. Let's keep going then in verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham and the ed- on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light and they, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God is with them uniquely. He's protecting them. Unstoppably so. Mightily so. And then we're going to get to verse four, chapter 14. But before we do, why are we doing this? You're like, why are we doing this at a Christian church today? Why are we learning about all these things? <laughs> because the second most important redemption event in all of human history is designed to be prophetic. According to John chapter 19. This is designed to have us look forward to a greater redemption, not just a physical redemption, not just a physical being set free from slavery, not just a physical temporary being set free from oppression and death and suffering. The Lord Jesus will be the ultimate savior, the ultimate mediator, and he will defeat the ultimate enemy. The final enemy, the Bible says, is death itself. So we're, we're looking at this to be impressed with God and how he's a redeeming God, a saving God. We're looking at this so that we might understand our Bibles better. We're looking at this so that we might think like Christians should be thinking and reading our Bibles like Christians should be reading our Bibles. This is great. This is exciting. Chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. What? I was reading that kind of going... They're fleeing for, for safety. Why, why in the world would the Lord have them turn back? I, I, I would, I would think he would say, don't ever even look back. Just keep going. What's he up to? The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath. I had to practice that one a few times. I even had to look it up in a dictionary or two. Pihahirath between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal, Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Oh, but it is going to be a good idea because the Lord's going to show his strength and his power. Let's keep going. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. This is all calculated. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory. Oh, that's why. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, all his military might. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. We've talked about it before. I won't rehearse it all or go back over it all, review it all. But we saw Pharaoh hardens his heart and the Lord uh, hardens his heart. And they go back and forth. The reality is God didn't change Pharaoh's nature. Pharaoh's a sinner to begin with. And, and he only just strengthens his resolve. This, this is what I know you want to do. And let me just remove any kind of hindrances is the idea. 
when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, how about this? What is this we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Can you imagine having servants who do all the hard stuff for you? Can you imagine as a people, you've had servants now for 400 years. This means a total radical life change for you, not for the easier, but for the harder. What what were we thinking? This isn't a good idea. We need to bring back our servants. It's understandable. It doesn't mean it's good, but it's certainly understandable. Verse 6 says, So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What's that mean? In other words, would have been better just to die in Egypt. What in the world are you doing? And they're talking to the mediator. So it's as if they're talking to the Lord. This is like the dumbest thing to ever possibly happen. This is awful. This is terrible. It would have been a lot easier to die in the place that we've called home for 400 years. What have you done to bring us to us and bringing us out of Egypt? Put, I'll put my finger there so I don't lose it this time. <laughs> what have you done in saving us? What have you done in redeeming us? What have you done in delivering us? Complaining about salvation is interesting. Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Put your finger there for just another second. The whole thing has been about set us free, redeem us, save us so that we might what? Serve the Lord so that we might serve Yahweh, so that we might serve the one true and living God, which is the only sane thing to do. And now they're saying, you know what? It would have been better if we could have stayed in Egypt. Serving the Egyptians and their false gods. Idolatry is a better gig. We like being enslaved and serving them the way we should serve Yahweh better than this. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Not, not, a, not a good response, not a good look. It's not the last of the bad responses. If I can ever so quickly, just consider we're not in their scenario. We're not them. There's a distinction between us and them. But how sometimes when you become a Christian, life doesn't get easier. Life gets harder. Because, you know, life is hard enough. Broken world, suffering death, all the things. And yet now we have persecution. 
because we belong to the one true and living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior and mediator. And sometimes we might want to be the grumblers and complainers because salvation isn't very enjoyable. My life got worse. It is maybe as another aside, if I can do an aside of the aside, why we should be more honest with people when we tell them what the gospel is and what it means to be long to Jesus. Instead of doing the fake sale, saying as long as you pray this prayer and repeat after me and you become a Christian, everything's going to be wonderful and you too will have a million dollar smile and be rich. (laughs) That's not genuine. That's not honest. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Okay, we should keep moving. 13 says, verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see, I love, 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 love this, I hope you do too, see the salvation of the Lord, not that the Lord needs to be saved, but it's it's because He's providing it, He's doing the saving, the salvation of the Lord, deliverance, redemption, which He will work, I love it, He does the working in the salvation, He will work, and notice also, not with you, for you today. That's how salvation works. It's temporary salvation here, but it reminds us of ultimate salvation for us. It's the Lord's salvation. He does it. He's the one who saves and he does the work for us. I love it. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The ones who want to take you and enslave you are going to be gone because of the Lord. This only continues wonderfully. Verse 14, look there. The Lord will fight for you. Salvation context. What a great verse to read in context. It's a salvation context. And when it comes to salvation, notice there, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. What a great way for us, even now as Christians, to know how salvation works. The Lord fights the battle for us against our enemy. The ultimate enemy is death. And you know what Pat Abendroth needs to do? Just shut his mouth. don't do anything. It is why we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately on account of Christ alone. I don't do anything. I just shut my mouth. God fights my enemy for me. That's got to be an all-time favor for me from now on till the end of days for me. We are, as one commentator said, spectators of the Lord's work. Verse 15 says, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 17 says, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen will know who the true God is when all of this goes down. Then we keep moving. Verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night. I like it when the cloud lights things up. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind and all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. 
the waters being a wall to them. In Hebrew, it's an architectural term for city walls, fortress walls, to keep enemies out, strong walls. The water is going to be like a city fortress wall. On their right hand and on their left. Oh, this is where I have all kinds of questions. Did they touch it? Were there shells on the dry ground? Could they see fish? I have a juvenile mind sometimes, but it would have been interesting. 23 says, oh, how did it smell? Okay, we, we should keep going. 23, <laughs> the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging, it's a derivative from that Hebrew word for hardening, like a Pharaoh's heart, clogging, hardening their chariot wheels so that they drove heavy, right? And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord. I love this too. The Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. He's that kind of savior. 26 says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And maybe this happens just because it's when the morning appeared. One insightful commentator though says, As the sun god Ra rose in the east, the Egyptian forces were destroyed. The sun god could do nothing for his worshipers. He was impotent to stop the decimation of his people. Then the commentator says, who is sovereign? Who is God? Is it Ra, Pharaoh, or Yahweh? We know the answer. Then let's keep moving in our text. It's in 27, partially through. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left How about verse 30? Thus the Lord saved, redeemed, delivered, set free. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Ever so quickly before we wrap up at the last words. Dramatic account. Amazing account. Horrifying if you're the Egyptians account. Supernatural account. The Bible goes out of its way to stress it's supernatural. The land is dry. As a new Christian, I had all kinds of resources. I was trying to read every book and people were like, oh, you want a Bible commentary? You can read this one and here's one. And all Bible believing Christians, uh, non-Bible believing Christians, which is a contradiction, but you get the idea. Um, so there was one that I read years ago uh, from a, I'll, let's say they were a theological leftist uh, who didn't believe in the supernatural. 
And so their explanation, as I recall it, of this was um, that it was a place in the Red Sea where the water happened to be shallow. And so the Lord didn't really do anything extraordinary. Uh, the amazing miracle was they found a shallow spot that was only a, a foot deep and the Israelites passed through. Isn't God amazing? And I heard someone else say, so you mean that the Egyptian armies all drowned in a foot of water? <laughs> Why do we work so hard to try to explain things away and we end up sounding more ignorant than ever when we try to explain things away? God is unique. God is God. And God does whatever he wants. He, he speaks things, things into being. He's a delivering, saving God. And guess what he did in the Exodus? He parted the Red Sea so that they could be delivered on dry ground. And then he secured the devastation and death of the Egyptians. That's what he did. That's what he did. It takes more faith to believe in the other nonsense than just what it says. One more thing before the last verse, and that is, it is interesting to see a preview of coming attractions as far as it doesn't end well for the enemies of the people of God. Because they're the enemies of God. Not because we're so good, but because he saved us. And so I'm thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ like in Matthew chapter 25. There's a coming day of judgment. There's a coming day of judgment. And if you oppose the people of God... And the Son of God and the Gospel of God, it's not going to end well for you. In fact, it will be worse than this horrific account that may have made you uncomfortable. Read Matthew chapter 25. We don't want the day of justice unless we're trusting in Christ who's made atonement for our sins as the perfect Lamb. And then finally, last verse, I promised twice. Israel saw... The great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his... Let me just insert for thought mediator. But that's not in the text. And believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. What's a great way to respond to all this? He conquers our enemies. He sets us free uh, with our mouths closed. We might be in military formation, but we didn't lift a finger. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. He sets us free from slavery and tyrannical oppression. How in the world would you want to respond to something like this? If you look at chapter 15, you'll know. You praise God. You sing and you praise and you honor him for being the great saving God that it is. And you say amazing things about him that you would never say ultimately about anybody else. And that's chapter 15. That's what we'll do next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the fact that you are a God who delivers. You are a God who redeems and sets people free. We are those kinds of people. And thank you for giving us this, this preview this physical event that would anticipate something far greater for us one day through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are a God of salvation and you've been saving in temporary ways throughout human history, that you've made the whole world fascinating, fascinated with salvation stories. 
no doubt so that we could appreciate the ultimate salvation narrative the one that comes through the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And next week when we gather and we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we eat and drink in remembrance of Him, may we do so even in a way that's more appreciative than ever before because we know He is the one who is the ultimate Passover Lamb. And we're remembering what He's done for us and eager to tell our families about it as well. Encourage us, motivate us, In Jesus' name we pray, amen.